Hello, is this thing on? Welcome back to Energy 101. We haven't been on here in a while, and I'm really excited to be recording again. Really, really um, welcome back. <laughs> yeah, the yeah. gang is back together. Sorry for the hiatus. Um, today, we have Joe Batir. He's a geothermal lead at Tavera, and I'm excited to learn about geothermal. We know nothing. Zero mm-hmm. things. I feel like it's just a word yep. that I keep hearing, but I have no idea what it means. Yep. Yeah, that's great. You want to tell us a little bit about your background and how you got started in geothermal? Yeah, absolutely. So thank you for having me on the show today. As as you said, Joe Batier, I've got a PhD in geophysics. That so fancy. I mean, it's it's just it's just squiggly lines. <laughs> Doct- Dr. Yeah. Joe. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Joe. Dr. Joe. So my background is all geology, all subsurface, went went to school, grew up outside of Chicago, mm. went to Iceland for my master's. That's where I went to Iceland to study geothermal energy and then ended up down in Dallas at SMU for my PhD in geophysics. And that's where I kind of I guess you could say that's where I started really becoming an expert in geothermal and stayed at SMU until 2020 through my PhD and then also doing research. And now I'm with Tavera as the geothermal lead. So as a geothermal lead, are you still just doing research all day? So we do a lot of different stuff. There is a a major research component because... I mean, as as you all know, mm-hmm. there are there are questions that are still not understood. And that goes from the simple basic of what is geothermal all the way to how do we actually know what and where this energy is? So we are doing we're doing early stage research in exploration and helping companies and utilities and entities know what resources they have. Mm-hmm. And then we are also developing new tools, new technologies to help understand, help monitor and help model the subsurface. Okay. So cool. So Professor Batier, that's who you I are like today. That. Yeah. Okay. You're gonna wow. class in session. Dr. Yes. Joe, question number one. <laughs> what is geothermal energy? What is geothermal energy? And how energy? is it generated? Because I feel like that can Ooh, so yes, I can answer that part. But geothermal energy is so much more than just generation. So I'll answer the what is, and then we can talk about how do you utilize geothermal energy. So what is geothermal energy? If you break it down, geo and thermal, it is heat, the thermal part, coming up out of the earth. Mm -hmm. So this is primarily two two different heat sources. There's the remnant heat of formation. So when the earth kind of conglomerated and mm-hmm. coalesced, it basically created this, this little fusion reactor, which is the core. Mm-hmm. And it is constantly spinning, constantly trying to cool off. All of that heat's coming to the surface. And then there are also natural radioactivity, naturally radioactive isotopes and and materials in the subsurface 
And those, as they are decaying, sending out these isotopes, that is also generating heat. So those two heat sources combined to make geothermal energy. Interesting. Did you have a follow-up on that? I mean, half the words you said I know went over I my head, help. but that's okay because I'm not going to try to be a geologist. <laughs> I feel like I'm back in uh, middle school like science class. I know. Yeah. Earth's core, you know, like all the layers and you, you know. Yeah. That's what I, I had a picture of the core or yeah. the layers in my head when you were talking. Um, so it comes from those two sources. How do you then capture those sources? Yeah. That's a good question. When you think about that heat coming out, like you don't walk around feeling heat coming up out of the ground unless right. you're like mm -hmm. standing on asphalt and it's a hot yep. sunny day in Houston. Yep. <laughs> so that heat, while there are terawatts of heat coming up out of the ground, it's very dissipated. Mm -hmm. So it's it's kind of like it's very hard to to collect together and actually utilize. So there's I mean there's two ways that you can basically find that heat. There's either naturally occurring hot springs where the heat is just more concentrated and it is flowing up out of the earth. Mm -hmm. Or the other main idea is that you would drill down, go very deep and just get to the point where there's plenty of that heat because it hasn't all gotten out yet. So the deeper you go, the hotter it gets. And once you get deep enough, you should have hot enough rock there that you can drill a well and start mm. extracting that heat. So wow. all of it is, I mean, in order to get that energy out, you have to drill wells. And for, I would say the, the equivalent of conventional oil and gas, like a conventional geothermal or traditional geothermal, you would drill a well, you would hit a water source that is going to flow water fast and that flowing of the water will produce that heat to the or to the surface. And then an unconventional geothermal would be drilling down and creating those fractures, basically fracking or stimulating the subsurface and then flowing the water through the subsurface. So now you're literally pumping water down it's like a U, to then right? produce it. It in the simplest sense, you can think of a U-type form. You've got an injection well, then you've got your producer well, and you're going to create a fracture network across those. So that way you're connecting your producer and your injector. Okay. So that's unconventional. So what does the shape of a conventional look like? A conventional, you've got a fault. So a, a natural, yeah. naturally occurring fault. That is flowing water from Got deep it. below. Okay. You're just trying to hit that uh -huh. and then produce it. Okay. Yeah. I had no idea that there were two types. Me either. Yeah. There's and a lot of similarities with oil and gas. Yeah, there are. There are a lot of similarities. And I think it that's one of the things that we don't we don't emphasize or we don't promote enough. The fact that there is this huge skill set and knowledge base and almost like a knowledge bank mm -hmm. in oil and gas that can very easily transfer over into geothermal. And through that knowledge transfer, I think you could also make geothermal grow in an exponential rate yeah. compared to right now where it's like very small little stepwise function, mm -hmm. very slowly increasing well, in market share. Is it because like, why are people like skeptical about 
geothermal? And like, is it, has it been around for like, is it a new concept or? So it's definitely not a new concept. The first electricity for mm -hmm. geothermal was produced in, I think it was 1904 or 1905. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. It's been around for a hundred years of yeah. actually taking that heat and producing electricity from it. Mm -hmm. And even before that, it's, I mean, wherever there's hot springs, there have been people who have been using those hot springs either for medicinal purposes or just leisure, mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. enjoying the natural heat coming up out of the heat. earth. That's like a tourist yeah. thing yeah. in a lot of cities. Like yeah, is Yellowstone can, like so kind of going off a little bit, but Yellowstone, like geysers. So geysers. yeah, Yellowstone is a super volcano. No. It is this huge geothermal resource. Mm. Yeah. It's also a national park. So I've we're been, never- Yeah, I've been there. <laughs> yeah. So we're never going to produce- energy from there but that is a i guess you could call that another way to utilize the geothermal mm -hmm. so instead of directly utilizing it for energy this is purely ecotourism that only exists because of the volcanic activity right and the geothermal resources so, there in theory even though it's national park i'm assuming i've never been to yellowstone but mm -hmm. i would assume they have you know things there like buildings and yeah yep. so in theory could they power those buildings with the energy from yeah they could in if, theory in theory but they won't theory. i know but they won't but they we're won't not, we're but not in gonna theory, promote they that. could though if, <laughs> yeah 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 absolutely interesting so i have a, a question kind of about the the history so it's a hundred years old but it seems like it's just now like maybe getting a People are excited about it, like you. Yeah. Like you're interested in it. You're trying to get other people interested in it, but it's been around for so long. Yeah. What is what happened in that timeline? Yeah. So traditionally, and I think this is this is why it was growing so slowly mm -hmm. because traditionally we would be looking for those faults. So think mm -hmm. of the same way of conventional oil and gas. We're looking for a specific play that is very much geographically constrained. So. For geothermal, you're talking about anything along the Ring of Fire. Mm. Think California, Alaska, and the Aleutian Islands over into Indonesia, Japan. Mm -hmm. Those are the areas that have active volcanism. That's where you have active, active geothermal energy. Very relatively easy to go and find. And so that is where the majority of exploration and the majority of interest has been. But that is a very small portion of the world. It's a very, it's a, and it's a very small portion of where there is in general heat. So, so because of that, once you find that and, and you know where the, the good, easy resources are, there hasn't been the same progress to try and figure out where else to go and produce. And then the other side of it is that up in, well, even now geothermal is still, it's kind of a low sum game. So it's the same kind of risk and the same kind of cost at, at, at the same scale as oil and gas. Mm -hmm. But you're talking now about producing electricity and we always go back and forth on what the equivalent is, but like for a barrel of oil, 
you're getting something like $70 per barrel. For a barrel of hot water for geothermal, you're getting a couple cents. So a good geothermal well is producing something like 50,000 barrels of water a day. And that is what makes it economic so that you can get five to seven megawatts of power from it. Well, and I think one of the things we wanted to talk about too, speaking of being cost effective, I know geothermal is considered a renewable energy. So compared to other renewables, I know we just compared it to kind of oil and gas, but compared to other renewables, what does that look like side by side? That is, it's a pretty tough comparison because we have to go back and and understand renewables in general. Yeah. So geothermal is what's called baseload, which means it is something that is secure, reliable, can be always on producing. Most power plants are at a 95% capacity factor, meaning they're on 95% of the time. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you've got- the factors of the wind, yeah, the sun. Yeah. Right. It's not, yeah. It's not beholden to the clouds in the sky mm-hmm. or the weather patterns. Can it be stored? You can. There's, I mean, there's there's different ways to think about that. You can store energy in the subsurface and treat it like geothermal. That would be thermal energy storage. That's one of the things that we work on at Tavera. But then there's also the the simple fact that the energy is already there. So this is where you start talking about dispatchable power, where you can just kind of, you can more or less shut down the power plant when you don't need the energy and then you're not producing it. Mm-hmm. So that in a way is storing it. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that makes sense because it's not just always um, going. So when you think yeah. about the the energy mix, um, you said it's baseload. So it can be, you know, comparable to oil and gas, how oil and gas we have to use as our base load. It wouldn't be more so like where it's intermittent. Yeah. Okay. Yep, exactly. So geothermal can be always on and it is always there. Awesome. And you can also ramp it up and down fairly easily. Mm-hmm. Whereas something like nuclear, I was just on a, I was moderating a panel with geothermal and nuclear. And the one thing that there's a lot of differences, but I think the most important difference to me that 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 kind of differentiates us in a maybe negative way is that for nuclear, you really don't want to be ramping it up and down. You want that to be mm-hmm. as super flat and as super steady as possible. Whereas for geothermal, you can ramp why, it up and why down. Why do you want that with nuclear? I honestly don't know. I think it's because <laughs> of the nuclear fission process. Got it. So you don't want to just be like moving your right. nuclear fuel all around. Yeah, that could be. And we need a nuclear person. I, we need yeah. a nuclear person. I am so yeah. interested and I don't understand Calling it. all nuclear people. <laughs> You'll have to Let us know. Yeah, I'll make people. some introductions. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it is. So for geothermal, the idea of dispatchable storage and, and also being baseload we can do that because of the way that that basically what geothermal is, it's already all there. It's just needs to be produced kind of when you want it. Got it. Okay. So the question for me then is why aren't more people paying attention to geothermal versus wind solar? Yeah. And this is where understanding that deep level is important because 
geothermal has that value of baseload, but the average price for geothermal power is more on on the scale of five to 10 cents a kilowatt hour versus wind and solar, you can get really like three to five cents a kilowatt hour, maybe sometimes less, Mm -hmm. sometimes more. So it comes down to economics right now. So somebody looks and, and says, okay, I can, I can spend $20 million for that 20 million. I can go just hypothetically, I can go and install 20 megawatts of solar or I can go and install five megawatts of geothermal. Well, depending on on the whole financial model, that five megawatts of geothermal is probably worth more because you're going to be able to generate that same amount of electricity right. in like three years versus how much you would need from the solar. Right. But you don't think about that. You just hear, oh, I can install 20 megawatts. Money, yeah. Oh, that's great. I'll when just do that. When it comes to equipment, how is that? Is it expensive for people to kind of get started with geothermal? Yeah. And so with wind, I think I don't think they know how long the turbines last. Right. Like they are probably more maintenance than they initially anticipated. Mm-hmm. So there might be more costs. It just doesn't seem like it at first. Is that accurate? Like, do you have to like what does the equipment cycle look like? Yeah. So the equipment cycle, when you're talking about a geothermal power plant, the the whole life cycle is exploration and doing your initial drilling and production testing. That's where you start needing to drill wells. And wells are the primary input as far as new equipment or maintenance across the life of the, the power plant. And that the drilling in wells is anywhere from 40 to 60% of total lifetime cost. And that includes all the, all the prospecting, all of the new drills, all of the infill drilling, all of that. And, and so that is something that you'll have every, depending on what you think, maybe five or 10 years, you'll have to be drilling new wells. Other than that, there's, the power plant itself, which I think is around 40, 20 to 40% of the rest of the cost. Everything else that another major potential cost is transmission lines. So those are, I think, roughly a million dollars a mile. So if you've got this great resource, but it's 50 miles away from the nearest substation, Mm. then you're going to have $50 million of just transmission. Yeah. And you've got to make that You've got to make that worth it. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to do that for like a 20 megawatt power plant. If you've got 200 megawatts, now maybe it makes sense. But you really have to have all of those pieces come together. And I think the the important part here that people always forget is that all of this is upfront cost. Mm-hmm. So you have to literally spend all of your money including building the power plant, drilling all the wells you think you need to have minus the infill drilling later and do all of that. And you don't actually start generating any any revenue until you turn that system on. Mm-hmm. And that is now the average cost is about three to $5 million a megawatt. So if you've got a 20, meg, a 20 megawatt plant, then could be... 30 to 
60 to 200 million dollars. I think that math isn't quite right, but somewhere around <laughs> that there. That sounds good so, to like, me. Yeah. So it's it's still I think it's important to realize that that's still less than say uh, a a new unconventional development. Right. Cuz there you're talking about some some well pads if you're drilling 20 wells, that can be that 200 million or or significantly more. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you start doing that, you know when you can turn those wells on and you can start generating revenue. Mm-hmm. Whereas here, you're, you're hoping you understand the reservoir properly. Otherwise, you may be out your 200 million <laughs> waiting and you don't know what yeah. to do then. Yeah, that so, sounds risky. Risky. <laughs> risky business. <laughs> Sorry, Sydney. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, 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 I interrupted. Um. In terms of global capacity with geothermal, I mean, you know, it's a renewable, it's natural, it's coming from the earth. So in my mind, I would think that there's a infinite, infinite supply. Yes, I would. So for, for our intents and purposes, mm-hmm. yes, I would say there is an infinite supply. Yeah. Obviously, the earth is going to. Right. It's going to stop one day. Right. But <laughs> hopefully not. once once hopefully we've lost the all the heat, yeah. once all the heat's gone, the earth's going to stop spinning, magnetic core is going to be gone, or the magnetic field's going to be gone. And we're going to We're f- all going to fry up. Yeah. Like that's, doomsday. At that point it yeah. doesn't matter, right? Yeah. So yes, let's call it an infinite resource and really it, it can be found anywhere. It's just a matter of being able to concentrate it enough to right. produce it. Well, that was going to be my next question in terms of geographic locations. It can be found anywhere. Are certain countries kind of leading the way? Is Are other countries adopting this method other than the U.S.? Yes. What's happening around the world? So there is a one of my favorite websites. I think they're one of the best ones for geothermal information mm-hmm. is Think Geoenergy. And they always have a... At the end of the year, they'll have like a year in review cool. and have like the top 10 countries. And and that goes by installed capacity. So as I was saying earlier, the ring of fire is where a lot of the traditional geothermal exploration is taking place. And that's where you're naturally getting that heat to concentrate. Mm-hmm. So if you think like there's a volcano, you can go and tap that volcano a lot easier than trying to drill a well outside of Houston. Right. Mm-hmm. So naturally those areas are going to have more, but just doing a- Yeah, I was going to say, can we look up and see what the- Yeah, if I can if I can get the, the right map, the right figure. Here we go. Whatever you pull up, you'll have to send it to us so we can. Yeah. Yeah, we'll insert. Yeah. So this one is, this is old, but for some reason, this was the first one that popped up. Oh, here we go. 2020 is better. It doesn't really change between 2018 and 2020, but. So this is what it is. And I can, I can share it with, with you all. Cool. But those are the top 10 countries. There are a, a total of. I think the U.S. is number one. U.S. Mm-hmm. is number one in installed capacity. We've got 
3.7 gigawatts of installed capacity. And then as, as you would expect, Indonesia and the Philippines, both on the ring of fire, have both high installed capacities. And then actually Turkey. Huh. So Turkey has 1.3 gigawatts. New Zealand has about one gigawatt. And then Mexico and Italy are both just under one gigawatt. I think now one of those is above one gigawatt because this this figure here is old. Where in the U.S. are like the hubs? So I wouldn't, I don't know if hubs is a correct term <laughs> because really it's, a, you've got the geysers, mm -hmm. which is in Northern California. And that is, is two to two and a half gigawatts of that three and a half gigawatts of installed capacity. Like the majority of it is in the geysers. And then Got in the it. Salton Sea, which is, is Imperial Valley, kind of that area where you've got that separating. So you've got like Baja, California, mm -hmm. and then Mexico. That goes up into the Imperial Valley, Salton Sea area. So that those two sections, which are volcanic, mm -hmm. those have the majority of the generating capacity for and the U.S. And those are conventional. Those are conventional. Okay. And then Nevada has 95% of the rest of it. And those are all conventional, but those are lower temperature in what's called just a an extensional setting. So they don't have volcanoes associated with them. They're just kind of the whole the whole section of the earth is spreading out and thinning there. So that's giving you those deep faults that will have water flowing up that you can find and and drill to and produce hot water from. I have a really stupid question. It might be really stupid. There are no stupid questions. We're supposed to ask stupid questions. I it's know. okay. <laughs> um, could you could you use a an oil well that has been drilled? Could you use like reuse that for a geothermal? Mm, but just that's like a good keep question. drilling. I don't. It might be really stupid. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's another one of the things that that we work on is this reutilization or repurposing mm. oil and gas wells. There, so yes, absolutely. There are a lot of wells that are hitting the right temperatures and have sufficient flow rates that you could probably go in and just produce the water as is and generate electricity. Now, we've been talking about megawatts and gigawatts for a for an oil and gas well, just because of where those are being drilled, they are going to be lower temperature and the way that the oil and gas wells are designed, they're they're smaller diameter. So they're smaller wells in general. Mm -hmm. And because of that, they're going to have a natural limitation of how much fluid you can produce. Okay. So, so that's the long way to say most oil and gas wells, if you were to repurpose them, are probably going to be more on the kilowatt scale of electricity. So when you think about a kilowatt, one kilowatt is probably just call it enough to run one house. So for an oil and gas well, if it can be repurposed, it's probably going to be around 100 to 200 kilowatts. So would the economics not make sense? It, if it's like a dry well, it's no yeah. longer producing and you're like, how can I? Yeah. So economics is, is a 
a big question because we've looked at areas and there are spots where we think the economics look very good, like comparable to a traditional oil and gas kind of play. But then for a lot, a larger majority of wells, the economics are a little bit less somewhere in that maybe say an IRR anywhere from zero up to 15%. And depending on who you're talking to, like that's not attractive. And I think for, for people who are just focused on, on the economics of it and just looking for that return that I, I don't think that it's ever really going to make the, there's always going to be some limitation there because it's either how long you're waiting for that payback or the total ROI or just something about it is ultimately not going to be the best investment you can make. There's always going to be something that, that you can make more money from. And I think that's, that's where we have to go back to like the value of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is there more intrinsic value than just the cash that you can make from it? Do I have another question? What's like the tension between like the oil and gas industry and like geothermal people? Is that a thing or did I just make that up? Like the oil and gas people, <laughs> like people are skeptical about it. Yeah. Well, I Why think. Why is that? Yeah. So there, there is this, this tension. And I think that that ultimately goes back to this idea of economics and business model and and going a little bit further, going into public markets, mm-hmm. when you are looking at something that is geothermal, you are looking at something that is going to be a, a long-term project. Most geothermal systems and most geothermal power plants or business models are based on a 30-year lifetime. Mm-hmm. So you build out this 30-year lifetime model, you have your estimated rate of return that is in a in a in a good power plant maybe in that upper end of double digits mm-hmm. and and then you're selling electricity and you're building out PPAs and you're you're doing I guess you're doing that whereas for oil and gas you're looking at drilling wells you're looking at significantly higher returns mm-hmm. you're looking at making your money back in two years yeah. and ultimately you're selling oil and gas you're selling a commodity mm-hmm. so it's it's almost like the the business models while both of these are profitable investments it is it is hard to make the case that a smaller a smaller return is still good for your shareholders Right. And then your shareholders say, "Hey, why are you why are you investing two hundred million dollars when you don't expect a a return in in five years?" Yeah. What do you tell people to combat that that thing that you know say that because it, I mean it is an issue. So yeah. how do you how do you almost convince them that it's worth putting your money in? Yeah, that I think the easiest way to help people understand it is when you're looking at something like stocks versus bonds. Mm-hmm. Those bonds are long term, they're stable, and there's still a return. So that is something that 
I think everybody can see and value. And it's just a real, really, it's just a question of, is that value going to be, would you rather have a long, stable return? And it may be a little bit less, but you know it's coming. Or do you want to kind of shoot for the moon and and chase those high returns, high risk, high reward situation Mm -hmm. and the volatility? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Are there people, because I know we talked a little bit um, that one of the methods is fracking to get down to the the heat source. Are there people that resist geothermal because of that? I know that's just Ooh. a huge in oil and gas, obviously. Like I that's was wondering that too with California. Like, but it's interesting, right? Because fracking, you know, yeah. it's so bad for the earth, but it's in this case, yeah. it's a much more sustainable, renewable source. Like, does that offset the mm-hmm. stigma around fracking or are people still like, nope, no fracking, no matter what the yeah. outcome is? I think that there is still that stigma because ultimately the why people are concerned about fracking, like they're worried about their water, they're worried mm-hmm. about creating these earthquakes right. that are going to destroy their houses. And they have these these legitimate legitimate emotions Mm -hmm. like their emotions are real like i don't want my house to be destroyed and i don't want to be drinking drinking gassy water right like i get that but it's still the same it's the same lack of understanding right that the the groundwater is safe and the area that you're fracking or stimulating Mm -hmm. is still highly controlled because ultimately you and I would say more so in geothermal because ultimately you need to know exactly where those fractures are because you need to drill a new well into that so that you can flow between the two wells. Right. So it has to be even more precise. And and yeah, I, I think people don't fully understand that and they are still still concerned yeah. about it. Oh, absolutely. Most people don't. I feel. Yeah. yeah. At all. Um. Before we go into rapid fire and wrap everything up, I mm-hmm. think from our conversation today in your mind, what does the future look like? You know, doing all this research, going forward geothermal, what does the future look like? And how do you see geothermal playing a role in just meeting energy demands? Yeah. I know that's a loaded question. <laughs> well, and of course, I'm I'm a little bit biased because yeah. I've been doing geothermal my more or less my entire career and I'm all for geothermal. So I I really do think geothermal is going to play a vital role Mm -hmm. as we go to this more diverse energy mix. And as we bring on more renewables, I think the way that we utilize the subsurface is going to be even more important. And that is geothermal energy, both traditional and unconventional it's going to be thermal energy storage in the subsurface, mm-hmm. and it's going to be understanding all of the pore space and how to best utilize it, whether that's for energy storage, CCS, or carbon sequestration, or for ultra ultra low carbon mm-hmm. oil and gas production. Right. Well, and I like the idea of being able to reuse the wells because I think mm-hmm. oil and gas gets such a bad rep. But, you know, if you could tell people, hey, we could actually use these wells to, in the 
pretty much the exact same way, get some renewable resources as well. Yeah. I think it kind of makes it worth it, in my opinion. Like yeah. you're not just drilling for no reason and then you're done and it just yeah. so goes let me, away. <laughs> let yeah. me give one example that I I just presented up in Fort Worth, I guess a few months ago now, but in Fort Worth, you've got several different companies. They've got well well pads in the city. Mm-hmm. Like you're driving around and you see tank batteries and wells and all of this stuff right there in the city. And so those wells drilling into the Barnett Shale, they are not hot enough to produce electricity. Mm-hmm. But what you could do though with those wells is you could hook all those up and use the thermal energy they're producing for heating and cooling for for those areas. Some of these are in mm. low income areas. Yeah. Some of them are in industrial areas where now you could repurpose these wells as the Barnett and as the Fort Worth Basin drops out of favor or becomes too expensive to produce. Right. Now convert that to geothermal. Oh, and cool. now you've got a, a direct correlation to positive low carbon energy for the city of Fort Worth. Especially in the low-income areas, we talk mm-hmm. a lot. We've been talking a ton about energy poverty yeah. um, and how just this energy mix that I think is becoming at the forefront of the energy conversations mm-hmm. is going to help contribute to getting some of these lower incomes. But I don't think people realize that there are still people in the United States yeah, that are considered energy poverty. Uh, what's the poor poor energy poor, energy poor. Energy i was gonna poor. say impoverished i don't think yeah. that's a word i mean <laughs> it's even poor. it's even cool yeah. use case just yeah knowing that and then applying that to third world countries yeah eventually mm-hmm. yeah yeah we well i have talked to probably more people from nigeria asking about well bore repurposing than than anywhere else wow. except for the u.s so it is i i love that that it's this area that has is still a developing country yet they have produced all of this oil and all of this great resource for the world yet somehow they're still this 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 poor country that mm-hmm. can't get up out of out of poverty and what's going to happen if you leave all of those wells and they're just sitting there now now they become a wasteland so instead why don't we start working towards converting that yeah and it's a way to have like it maybe i'm wrong but like a gridless infrastructure right could you have where you're like directly into communities yep like that's that's cool and that's what's needed for yeah it's for you know places like i think they're doing uh bitcoin mining in kenya uh, yeah kenya yeah where they're using what are they using? Whatever, whatever source is there? Is it hydro? I don't know. I they're powering hydro, the miners yeah. on hydro to help um, smaller. Like there's there's no infrastructure at all. Mm-hmm. So to power those, but also like generating revenue mm. through that to be able to build up yeah. to have an infrastructure, which I don't know. I find that very fascinating. And yeah. um, anywhere where you can, you know, go direct to communities i think is very yeah cool. yeah and i think that's that almost works better because then you start distributing the energy in a distributed energy network kind of system and you're fixing some of the problems directly that we have today where mm-hmm. 
with the winter storm Uri, like the big mm -hmm. problem is once you start losing too much power, some of the big power plants, now you're at a huge risk. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you've got a hundred little power plants, okay, maybe one or two or even 10, 10 of them go right. down, but you still have a lot more energy that can be passed around. Mm -hmm. Yep. Rapid fire? Rapid fire. Rapid Ready? fire. <laughs> What's the number one misconception about the geothermal industry? Number one misconception is that it is it is new or mm -hmm. or old in terms of old technology or that it's just for electricity. You can use geothermal for electricity, for heating, for cooling, for hydrogen generation, for mm -hmm. growing plants. There's a lot of things you can use it for, but mm -hmm. this is rapid fire, so I'm, I'm done. <laughs> why should we care? Like coming into this, we didn't know anything about geothermal. So why is it important that other people should care about it? Other people should care because it is, it is everywhere. There is mm -hmm. heat beneath our feet, mm -hmm. even right here in this studio. Eat beneath the feet. And <laughs> that's the name of the episode. Yeah. <laughs> we got two names now. <laughs> that's great. And it and ultimately this this can be that foundational energy for the entire energy mix. And then last one, what's your most embarrassing story that's in your career? <laughs> most embarrassing story in my career. Mm -hmm. He's like, I don't have one of those. <laughs> uh, I think um He's like, should I say it? I'm trying to so during Oops, my sorry. during my uh master's defense, somebody asked me about induced seismicity and and I said well, no, I don't think, and I, I was working on a project in, in Iceland for mm -hmm. that. And I said, well, the induced seismicity isn't really a problem because, you know, it's, it's, it's not high energy. We're only talking about threes and less. And at that time that was, that was true. And I said, and besides that, there's, there's probably nobody living out there anyway. So they probably so it probably doesn't matter. And, and so this was taking place in Iceland and all of a sudden all of the Icelanders in the room started to chuckle because even though I had been to the site and, and been to the power plant and actually collected the, collected the data for my thesis, I didn't realize that there are multiple small like towns of like 5,000 people that are literally just on the other side of the hill. <laughs> so you're because like, those people don't there. exist. <laughs> yeah, those people don't matter. I was like, oh, geez. So then somebody told me this great story about, yeah, you know, the, these three towns that I can't pronounce are right there. And, you know, they did have earthquakes. They did feel them, but they actually liked them because they know when you get those earthquakes, that means that the system is working and that oh. means that you can produce more energy. So that's a nice way to look at it. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's a it's a different perspective on when you get those earthquakes, you know, something's happening. Awesome. Yeah. Interesting. That's very interesting it way is. to look at it. Yeah. You yeah. Tell everybody that there's been earthquakes in Midland, guys. We're just producing. We're just energy. Yeah, we're just getting energy. <laughs> we're just getting energy over here. Yeah.
Dr. Yeah. Joe, thank you so much for coming to join yeah. us. Yeah, thank you all for inviting me. Yes, this we'll have fun. to do it again. This was time. very fun. We've needed a geothermal expert for a while, mm-hmm. so yeah. Yeah, I'm glad I learned yeah. a lot. Me too. Good, good. I feel like there's so much more to say. I know yeah. we need to. I think like keep going <laughs> yeah. forever. I feel like I'm like very pro geothermal now. I'm like this sounds mm-hmm. this sounds good. Yeah, it's the answer. Yeah. Geothermal, geothermal is, is the, the answer. answer. <laughs> I like yeah. it. All right. Bye. Bye. We'll oh, catch you next time. Oh, well, should we? Is there a sign off? Do, do we all have, have a sign off? No, we do no, this every time. This. We all. Um, do we have any announcements? Uh, Energy Tech Night Midland coming up June 14th. Learn excited. more. I'm at excited our to take some of the team to Midland. I have never been to Midland. and I. You've never been to Midland? No. Me neither. I'm oh. A, I'm not from Texas. I've only been working here for a year. So. And I was not in energy or anything related to that before I came over here. So You as well? I'm from Texas, but yeah, never been in Midland. Okay. Yeah. Wow. It's a fun place. Yeah. Yeah, it's a fun place. <laughs> you, you can't say anything enjoyable. bad about it because you're you're talking to a, yeah, a Midlander very, right here. Very enjoyable. Yes. Very enjoyable. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Only I can say bad things That's about it. That's super convincing. <laughs> yeah. It's a it's a it's a great place to raise your children, from what I hear. From what I hear. I've heard that too. Literally everybody says that. That is what everybody <laughs> says. Are you being serious I, or are you yeah, being sarcastic? So I was out there for a summer working with Whiting. And every time I would tell people, yeah, everybody's super nice. It's, it's great out here. Like I, I'm enjoying my time. But, you know, I don't think I, I would want to raise a family here. And then they always say, you know, actually, it's a really great place to raise a family. You know... But you were raised. I would have to disagree. I loved be I love being from Midland. I love Midland. I think it's an amazing place. But the I it was a culture shock moving to Houston, where you're around so many different Mm -hmm. people, like Mm -hmm. so diverse. I always talk about this, but I wasn't exposed to anything in Midland, and I don't want that for my children. I want them to my I I, y'all have heard this a thousand times. My youngest his best friend is Chinese and he's like learning Chinese from their family. And I think that is amazing. Like you get to learn about different religions, cultures, everything. You don't get that in Midland. And you know, some people are okay with that. It's very, um, yeah. I don't know. People are, it's, it's a certain lifestyle. Isolated. Yeah. You're just, it's culturally, culturally not diverse. Yeah. And I, I felt like I forget the road, but whatever that road is that you go under, which is like going through through the main city center. Once you go under the road, then it's like that road feels like it's a separating. It's like going across the tracks. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about? No, I don't, but <laughs> Okay. Yeah, okay. but no. There the She's tracks, like, yeah. like across the tracks is a completely different place. Like yeah. it doesn't feel like the same place as yeah. like actual Midland. Yeah. 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 Anyway, we'll get to know. Anyway, love. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> All, All right. right. Signing off. Bye. Bye.